Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Welcome to this special edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. This is our very own version of homeschooling. But instead of learning English <laughs> and mathematics and all those kind of things, we're going to talk motorsport. This is the first of a two-part special, and it's all about the American Le Mans series, of which many people look back on very fondly. My name is Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined by a bevy of, um, no, beauty doesn't work. I'm sorry. No, not a bevy of beauty, a bevy of people who were there and saw much of the series. Joe Bradley, Graham Tyler. I know you've got Jim Rowland, Paul, because I can hear the dogs barking. <laughs> <laughs> you've definitely got Jim Rowland. He's still with yep. us. Yeah, Roller and the Dogs, Joe Bradley, thank you, and Graham Tyler. Good evening, all. Um, Jim, yes. people ask whether the American Le Mans series evolved or whether it was invented and whether it was the creation of one man or was it a team effort? Yes. <laughs> it was all those things. In the, in the mid-'90s, American sports car racing had fallen on hard times. Uh, and we'll discuss that a little bit a little bit later in the show with one of the people who was instrumental in bringing the American Le Mans series about. IMSA, which had been the preeminent sports car racing series in America, had gone through a series of ownership changes and a series of manufacturers leaving. It sports car racing in the United States had really kind of lost its way the world sports car formula, the WSC cars, the open top kind of prototype looking cars were just coming in to their own in the, in the mid nineties. And, and that kind of gave us a bit of hope with the Ferrari 333 SP and cars like that. And a guy by the name of Andy Evans took over uh, IMSA. And my mama told me when I was a little boy that if you can't say anything nice about someone, then don't say anything at all. So we'll move on from that. <laughs> and Andy um, uh, came upon uh, a, a competitor who appeared on the scene by the name of Don Panos. And at the 1997 Sebring 12 Hours, of which I was the TV producer for, for ESPN, Andy had trouble on a pit stop. And he lost the lead of the race. Now, Andy not only was the owner of the series, but he was also the uh, one of the competitors. And so he changed the pit rules in the middle of the race. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. <laughs> it so enraged Mr. Panos that much like the days of Ferrari and Ford, Don bought the series. Now, this, of course, had come... Uh, on the heels of his first trip to Le Mans and learning uh, that he really did love sports car racing. Uh, and Don came to sports car racing actually because he was just helping his son, Danny, market these boutique sports cars that Danny had decided to build. So through a certain amount of happenstance and, and, and luck, 
uh, and that's that bug that Lamar has bit each one of us that are on our little round table here. We have a love for that place that is uh, inquenchable a lot of times. Well, that bug bit Don, and the rest, as they say, is history. He threw his uh, substantial fortune and might behind uh, starting a racing series. It was launched with the uh, Petit Le Mans in 1998, which Joe Bradley was at. I had to miss that because of uh, some ESPN football commitments. I watched it from afar. Uh, Joe was there, I believe. And, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and then in 1999, the series started and went unabated until the merger in 2013. So it was, it was a great run and brought about a lot of great sports car stories, which hopefully we'll get to share some of them today. Joe, that must have been um, that. That must have been quite a treat. That first Petit Le Mans. It was, it it, it was quite bizarre. Really, it was quite sort of surreal. Um, I was part of the Radio Le Mans team. Um, certainly not in the guys that I work at at the level I work at, like doing main comms or, or even pit lane interviews. I used to get the very odd interview recorded, etc. And it was. Graham Tyler will keep me right on this one. 1997 was when the panels first appeared um, at Le Mans, and it got quite a lot of publicity because it had a TV personality called Noel Edmonds behind it. And the car was pretty unique. It was front-engined. It had a a roof. It was very um, different to the open-top sports cars that we were perhaps more, um, more used to. And out of the blue... And I, be- I believe, um, you know, Hindoff will be able to put more meat on these bones. But out of the blue, um, Hindoff gets a call from a guy. And the thing that Don Joe Widensall. Was- <laughs> uh, from Joe Widensall, absolutely. Yes. No, sorry. No, no. Before Joe Widensall, um, Hindoff gets a call from a guy um, who's the computer geek. Now, what Panos wanted to do was not just emulate this massive race in France, which he fell in love with. He, he, he did the concept he wanted to bring to America and he wanted to bring the concept of the Le Mans 24 hours to the American sports car scene in a nutshell. Um, but he was very keen on this brand new innovative thing of broadcasting his race on the internet. Now, at the time, 1998... The majority, there was no such thing as broadband. Everyone was on a dial-up. Everyone was on, I, I can't even remember the names of the, the, the kits that you needed to be on a computer on the internet. And it was very, very innovative to actually broadcast audio on the internet, even more so live audio. This was all new ground. And this computer geek, uh, his name was Noel Bradford, and he was, you know, a, a computer genius by all accounts he got approached why didn't Saul be able to tell us the machinations of that so I'll I'll, I'll not mention that because mine's just that's you know I'm probably I'm probably getting a lot of it wrong but basically out of the blue we get a call Hindoff gets a call and Hindoff I remember the night that Widensall contacted John because it was in my house on a Sunday evening we were probably watching a, an IndyCar race on screen sport or something and in the corner um 
was hind off having this conversation and he comes off the phone he says do you fancy going to atlanta in october and i was like what are you talking about so we got you know here we were with a chance of going to atlanta to work on an american sports car race and i knew kind of vaguely of what was going on in america but i didn't have any in-depth knowledge of or understanding of what jim's just alluded to with regards to the series and Andy Evans and all of that. I knew nothing whatsoever about that. Um, but I quickly grasped the idea that Pano, what Don Panos uh, was trying to do and bring international sports car racing to the United States. And he, he, he owned Road Atlanta and he was bringing this event, which he named Petit Le Mans, the Little Le Mans. And it was going to be a thousand mile race was a thousand miles, wasn't it, Jim? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, it was a thousand miles at ten hours, yes. whichever came first. Yes. I think. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly. It. So um, we were basically, um, you know, we we I'd been to America before, I think twice, purely as a tourist. So here we were at this iconic racetrack that I'd only ever seen. That was back in... before we had immigration control like we have now. <laughs> yeah well isn't everyone let's just catch up on the the other side of that conversation because jim spoke to uh joe widensaw and his uh his his side of the story joe and i go all the way back to the miami grand prix in the early 80s he was one of the folks that helped ralph sanchez through uh, his connections with spanish television joe's connections with spanish television to get the miami grand prix off the ground and then in later times, served as director of broadcasting for IMSA. Unfortunately, Joe, you got to live through some of the dark times of IMSA after the GTP era and the manufacturers had kind of gone away and it went through a, a series of, of, of ownership changes. And then uh, a guy by the name of Andy Evans uh, took control and uh, that it was it was really bizarre then, wasn't it? Well, yeah, that I I had been I, I was with with IMSA actually twice, and when when I heard that Andy was was buying the company, I chose nothing against Andy. I, I just I just didn't want to go through that with Andy, so I I went on to do other projects, and and Andy um, didn't didn't have IMSA very long, and then I heard that Don a guy named Don Pandos who I didn't know was was buying IMSA and that he had hired Bill Donaldson, a friend of mine here in Indianapolis, to sort of be his series director. And um, I called Bill and asked him who was going to do his TV, and he said he hadn't really decided, and I pitched myself, and that day, we or next day, we had lunch, and, and I joined Bill, and that's how it started uh, with me with the ALMS. That was probably the brightest uh spot of sports car racing for me because that first year and a half or so that we were there um I mean, it was a killer <laughs> almost <laughs> literally but it was um it was something else i mean yeah literally yeah, starting with a blank piece of paper you know it didn't take a big picture of kool-aid to get me on board that that's that's for sure i drank the kool-aid very quickly because don came along at a time when when all the manufacturers had run off and i think that he figured out a way to bring some of them back, didn't he? Well, yeah, I, I think that, um, I mean, any any credit that's due anyone for turning that thing around goes, in my mind, goes to Don, because 
let me back up. About three or four years before that, I had gone to Lamar for the first time with Mark Rapoff and Hal Kelly. And I mean, I was blown away, as most people are. One thing that really got to me was, I mean, there were people from every place speaking many languages, but everything that the race organizers did was all in French. If you didn't understand, if you didn't understand French, you didn't, I mean, you missed a lot and I didn't understand French, but there was one thing I heard and I forget how it came to my attention, but there were these crazy group of British guys doing like a, a trackside radio service or, or something in English because there were so many Brits that came to that race. I, I enjoyed it. I, th I thought it was really unique and I enjoyed it and, and that was it, but it stayed with me. And then Don wanted as much authenticity connection between the American Le Mans series and the 24 hours of Le Mans as possible. So I thought, well, what else was, would be better than to bring these, these guys over that, that do the English language service for that, for that race and, that's how we brought John Heinhoff and some of the guys over to do what we first called the American Le Mans Series Radio Web. And little did you know that <laughs> that was going to become a pretty big part of your life. Well, yeah, and it spawned some friendships that uh, are still <laughs> are still active uh, today. So, yeah, you're 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 exactly right. Now, it wasn't just the American Le Mans Series Radio Web. Uh, that was new. You signed a deal uh, with NBC for CNBC and to get almost all the races in a somewhat live kind of format. Uh, the, the whole thing was very cutting edge, wasn't it? There's a big difference in my mind between having a live or a same day television coverage of an event and seeing it two weeks later. I mean, and, and, and a lot of the IMSA stuff had been two weeks, <laughs> two weeks later, to be honest. One of the things that Bill asked me, Bill Donaldson asked me, was uh, he said, I've been trying to get through to the guys at NBC, and I can't, I can't get through. And I said, well, I think maybe I can. So I did. I made a call and, and, and got through. And three days later, Bill and Don and I were meeting in New York with the people at NBC, and we, we did a deal. That NBC uh, relationship and then the ongoing network uh, involvement uh, with these races airing on the bigger networks, that really helped separate the American Le Mans series from everything else in sports car racing, didn't it? Yeah, and I think that uh, what really matters is the people that are writing the big checks to uh, participate in these series, and I'm talking about the manufacturers and the sponsors, I mean, you've got to give them some return. I mean, they somebody has to explain those expenditures to somebody along the line, and we were pretty smart, I think, in, in, in hiring the Joyce Julius people. All the, the major sponsors subscribed to Joyce Julius, and they would see that they were actually getting a return on their money, and it was provable. And I think that was the first time that IMSA, or sports car racing, was ever able to do that. And I think that made a big difference. Well, Joe, thanks for your time. Congratulations. Uh, uh, it's a legacy that you'll be able to carry proudly, I think, is that you were one of the, the people that helped put together and make the American Le Mans series what it was from 1999 to 2013, and that's something that uh, I hope you're proud of because you should be. Well, I am, and, and actually, you know, you were with me pretty much lock in lockstep, so I owe you a lot of uh, thanks for that, too. Ah, well, Mutual Admiration Society, I love it. That's Joe Widensall, who was the person who was largely responsible for the 
American Le Mans series radio web, which is what it was originally called. And Joe Bradley, you went from being a tourist to being a ALMS pundit. I'm I'm hit, I'm there uh, working at Road Atlanta, which is the most beautiful racetrack and still is one of my favourites, if not the favourite. And here I am on a with a grid full of the best looking sports cars, international sports cars, with a grid of former Formula One drivers and international sports car drivers that, you know, that is just to dream of. And what Joe Widensall didn't tell you is that the night before the race, <laughs> he, he took us off to um, <laughs> Mr. Panos's fundraising event which was in a big marquee in a part of downtown Atlanta. And would you believe a hurricane um, came through, the, the, the edges of a hurricane came through, and we had to evacuate the, um, we had to evacuate the marquee. And so Joe took us, to, to continue the, um, the, the night, Joe took us to, and I still remember the name, Joe took us to a bar in downtown Atlanta called Sambuca's and basically got us completely and utterly hammered <laughs> to oblivion. Oh, yeah, he held your arm up between your shoulder blades and oh. made you drink every one of those pints, <laughs> oh, didn't he? Honestly, Jim, Jim, you, you know I'm easily led astray. Um, but um, this was ridiculous preparation for... And there was... The thing was, there was, there was John Hindoff, me and Gary Dodds, who we dragged along as our photographer as well, because we hadn't, Gary Dodds became the official photographer of the series. Um, he got us absolutely hammered to the point where we're standing in Sambuca's and he introduces me to some guy, and I can't remember the guy's name, but it's easy to find out who he was, because apparently he was the senator of Georgia um, <laughs> in 1998. <laughs> and this guy said... Um, Oh, look, you can't drive all the way out to Brazelton. Go to a hotel. I can't remember the hotel. I can't remember very much, actually. Um, <laughs> go to That's a hotel a downtown, and, and I've got some rooms there, and, and there's a room there for you. And to cover a very long story short, um, we got back to the room at, I don't know, 3 a.m. We had to be up again at 6.30, so it was absolutely pointless going back to the room, to be honest. We get up the next morning. We, I can't function. And we get in the car and at seven and drive to, um, what is it, about 45-minute drive to Brazelton to Road Atlanta, get to the track, and I am ill. I am absolutely ill. And I was a lot younger then, so I could absolutely sort of recover very quickly from really bad hangovers from hard liquor. And it's all White and Salt's fault, and it was ridiculous. That he did that, but I knew what it was. It was a complete test, because if these guys can party hard like we did and still do the job the next day, then they're in for the long haul. I think that was the test. Which we and we and you know what we proved ourselves because we were much well. You you passed passed with flying colours, actually. Yeah, we did. Yes, we did. And I remember getting the road Atlanta and underneath the tower that they've only recently knocked down a couple of years ago. I lay on the grass and went comatose for I needed two hours or at least an hour or something. And I remember lying on the grass. And in England, you can lie on, on the grass anywhere in England. 
and there's nothing nasty there. But apparently, everyone was aghast at me lying on the grass because it's full of these ants and spiders or something. <laughs> that beautiful red Georgia clay is full of nasty things. So, to cover a long story, another, I have so many long stories. Paul, you could probably fill another six hours with this. Um, <laughs> well, you, we have plenty of time. Excellent. Um, so, the actual, the race goes ahead, and I'm thrust into the pit lane of this uh, race car series. And it was, it was the, the first, you know, the first Petit Le Mans we, was a one-off. This was, you know, all right, the people in the background may have knew there was going to be a series, but they weren't alluding to this. I think they were going to wait and see how successful it was with regards to the entries they got and how, you know, and how this, this event, this Petit Le Mans came off. And there wasn't talk of a series uh, being generated until, uh, I'm, I'm not really sure, maybe after the event, but the event was, a, as we know, you know, massive success. Eric, I remember the triple three Ferrari won. Eric van der Poel uh, was one of the drivers. Wayne Taylor and Didier Tiz, if my memory serves right. And I haven't got Wikipedia or anything open. I've got, I've got nothing open. I do remember it. I remember the car coming down the hill, me on the in the pit lane, and the sight of the triple three Ferrari coming down the hill. It was the the race started um in daylight and went on into the night and i think it was probably about towards 10 p.m when the check and flag when we'd achieved the race distance and i just remember the sight of the ferrari and at that time fireworks going off and and it was the first big motor race i'd been to in america and american motorsport american racing is is slightly different to european and you can't help but feel you're at an event. You're at something very special. Little did I realise at the time that it was something exceptionally special that I was a part of. And it's incredible to think that from that from that one weekend of Petit Le Mans, it, it grew and evolved into, you know, I'm, I'm here talking to Jim Roller, who's a massive yes. personal yeah. friend of mine. I've generated, you know, all the names that will come about that will come about in this, in the stories we're about to tell. You know, there's a, I've got a lot to thank for being part of that event. Um, it was just, it, you just kind of knew, Paul. You knew it was something special here. You knew that, hey, you know what? I just hope and pray that that we've passed all of our auditions. <laughs> whether it be in the bar, how we reacted <laughs> to the hangover or whatever it was. And did I ask the right questions? Well, you obviously did because uh, it went on for, for some time. But hmm. Gra- Graham, how did, how did your um, initiation start? Well, well it, it started here in England because the American Le Mans series in year 2000 decided it would be a really good idea to take the series on tour. So they came across to Europe and they did a few races in Europe, one of which was a 500-kilometre race at Silverstone, to which I was invited. Um, Not to do anything serious, but just to to be part of it. And um, having, like Joe, done my my time with Radio Le Mans, um, but not on on live mic um, very often, um, it was... was, uh, it was very much in in my blood. I'd, I'd been a, a sports car fanatic since no, 1980 was my first trip to Le Mans, and that that bug bit me absolutely thoroughly. 
Um, and so when 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 ALMS came along um, to Silverstone, of course I wanted to be there. And uh, it was at that race that things started to happen because uh, part of the American contingent who came over was one Charles Dressing, uh, who became a very very and remains a very very good friend. Um, and who was absolutely instrumental in persuading me that I needed to do more of this uh, and that I shouldn't just be standing on the sidelines. So one way or another, he convinced me that I should really make a trip across to Seabrook, um, which happened in 2002, particularly because it was the 50th anniversary running of the race. And he said, you can't not be there because everybody who is anybody in American road racing will be there. And there will be names that you've only ever read about that I can introduce you to and we can go and have a chat. And it was unbelievable. This, this cavalcade of, of you know, American history um, running past my eyes. Uh, and, and I turned up there without the prior knowledge of Messrs. Heimdorf and Bradley who were already well established by then, uh, I just was there on holiday. And um, little did they know that I was going to knock on the studio door and open it and walk in. It's the first and last time that I've actually seen both Hindoff and Bradley in the same room, silent. <laughs> never, never, ever experienced that before or since. I they celebrate the anniversary no, of that <laughs> annual. <laughs> yes, it didn't last long, but it was it was spectacular just for those few seconds. Um, and and then the 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 sad thing happened for well, sad for for Joe, but astonishing for me, um, which you alluded to, Jim, just uh, just a few moments ago. Um, where Joe managed to come into too close proximity with a golf cart uh, in the paddock the day before the race and ended up with a knee the size of um, a soccer ball and pretty much unable to, to walk. Now, of course, by this time they knew I was there, but they also knew I was there on holiday. So it was with some trepidation, I think, that I was approached and asked, <laughs> would, I, would I be interested in doing something in the pit lane? Grim, 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 there was no right. trepidation. There was no trepidation from our part. Yeah, I'll, I'll, <laughs> just, I'll, I'll just keep He couldn't just, walk, Graham. Yeah, well, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story. And so it all started from the very first practice session. And I, we hadn't done anything. And it was the very first practice session. So the cars hadn't been on track or anything. And I was walking into the pit lane to do our first broadcast of FP1, free practice one. And I was with like within about 30 seconds, I was totally mowed down by one of those little tire tr truck things. Um, these are like an electric vehicle with a flatbed and the driver sat at the back. And I was basically just hit from behind. I ended up on the flatbed, but it, it dislocated me left kneecap. My left kneecap was round the other side, completely out. And it hurt. And I was flat out and... The thing is, the guy that the guy that was driving the tire trolley, I'd gotten to know quite well. And, you know, it's a little family. You travel all over America. But this guy was an expat, and he'd been in the United States for about 30 years. And he was, every time I went to the track, I would make a beeline because he needed an update on the English Football League. 
and we would have I'd bring him up to date about what was happening in the English Football League. So he was kind of like you know somebody I knew really well, and he was beside himself. He was oh, he was aghast. So I, I was carted off to the medical centre and given gas and air. And I distinctly remember the um, the PA, and I heard, you know, I heard, uh, let's go down to Joe Bradley in the pits now for a pit a pit lane update. Joe, Joe, and it was kind of like silence because I was being tended to. So, to cut a long story short, I was, they, they sort of sorted me out, gave me drugs, strapped my leg up. And sent me off, and then I, then I ended up going to one of the um, uh, team physio people who were quite adept at strapping up dislocated knees. Apparently, it's very common in American football for people to have their knees dislocated, and then this special strap technique of keeping the knee in place so that they can play on. Well, I didn't have to play American football, but I did have to run up and down the pit lane. And I know it's hard to believe, guys, uh, that I used to run up and down the pit lane. But in those oh. days, I, I literally used to run up and down the pit lane. And this particular year, 2002, I was by myself. So I was on my own. Now, the problem was that how was I going to be able to do that? I wasn't. I was going to be able to hobble up and down the pit lane. It was, re- you know, how we're going to do this. And then Hindoff and I... Graham won't know this from this perspective, but it was then Hindoff and I, Tyler's here. He might be on holiday, but Tyler's here. So we went and found Graham. And Graham, yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but I will never forget this because it was so kind of, uh, uh, kind of, you know, it struck me so much that when I said to you, Graham, Graham, we need you to work the pit lane. We need you to do pit lane interviews. We need you to work the pit lane. You kind of went, oh, Lads, sorry, no, I'm on holiday. And it was like, it was like, no, no, Graham, come on, Graham. And I, I remember saying to you, Graham, you'll be bored within 10 minutes of the race. You've seen the cars on track. You've been, all, you've been around the track. You've seen every corner. You'll be bored within 10 minutes of the race. Um, so, you know, this will give you something to do. And you were quite reluctant. You were quite reticent about actually doing that. I'm, you know, I'm sure, you know, you'll remember that, but it'll be interesting to hear it from your perspective. I remember it well, and it was it was a very strange question to be asked out of the blue, which I simply was not expecting. And uh, yeah, it, it took me a little while to to compute that I could actually do it. Um, but thank you for um, throwing yourself in front of that truck because without that, <laughs> um, my career with ALMS would never have happened. Yeah. So how much did it cost you then? How much did you pay the oh, truck, uh, the little guy on the tire uh, truck then? <laughs> A modest amount, a modest amount. Well, you never look back, mate. You travel to America quite a bit. Because yes, I, mean, I, 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 I don't know if you guys realise this, but Graham and I, at the time we were doing this, all had regular jobs. We both had regular jobs. I was a police officer, and yeah. Graham, um, I forget what you were doing, Graham, but we both had proper jobs, didn't we? And yeah, I yeah. couldn't commit to the, 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 um, the series grew to have more, I think it was about nine or ten rounds. 12. And I couldn't twelve rounds for right, so I couldn't commit to the to the whole series, and Graham no. just fell into that slot nicely, didn't you, mate? Because you did, uh, you was, and I kind of did a job share. Yeah, it was an absolute joy because um, where that led me next was to Washington, of which more another time. Mm, our next, our next podcast, perhaps. I, I got to tell you one other aside too, Joe and and Graham and and Paul. 
Joe talked about laying in the hospital and Hindoff throwing to him. Joe, if you and I had a dollar for every time Hindoff threw to us at some point when we weren't actually where we were, where he thought we were, I can remember at Petit Le Mans in 2000 calling a pit stop from the line for the loo. <laughs> because because it was they had one of those porta johns out back behind the pit lane and there was I was like fifth in line for the for the for the loo and yeah. and John goes let's go to the gym roller because the Audi's in the pits and I I'm I what do I do and and I look and I can see through the fence and lo and behold there's the Audi stopping right there in front of me <laughs> So I'm calling the pit stop and everybody in the loo lines turning around looking at me like I've got three heads or something. And it was like, I get all done. And they go, wow. I go, well, yeah, yeah I could see it. <laughs> Don't spoil the magic. That's right. Don't show them how the sausage is made. Just let them enjoy the sandwich. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all of you have all been to different races, both sides of the Atlantic. Um, I'm going to ask Jim, first of all, how you would see the atmosphere being different from a U.S. race and particularly an ALMS race. And let's say something from the WEC. Well, for me, what you guys have noticed and felt about an American racing series was commonplace. So it was an education for me and, I got a big kick out of it, actually, when I would be sitting with you guys and everybody's so friendly and, oh, we can walk in the paddock and we can do this and we can do that. And I'm like, you mean you can't do that otherwise? <laughs> and, <laughs> and in reality, you can't. And there is, and you can, whether it be guys like Joe and Graham and, and, and you, Paul, or the, the race drivers or even the crew guys and the car owners, uh, the team principals that when they come to the United States, they can't believe how welcoming and everything the facilities are and the people are. And I didn't really, uh, you know, my only experience with, with that was the occasional formula one race uh, that I would get to uh, in England and then going to Le Mans uh, in, in the late eighties and mid nineties. Um, it, it was different. And uh, I didn't really think that much about it until you guys started bringing it up. And it mm. is, it's, it's a true fact. It's a much mm. more laid back atmosphere in American sports car racing. Now there are other forms of racing in America where they, they want to duplicate that European strictness because they get off on it, I guess, or something. But um, yeah, sports car racing has always been uh, the big tent uh, of of American racing. I, I think I can sum it up actually. Okay. Um, it's when you go to an American motor race, whether you're a fan, a crew member or broadcast media, the attitude is what can we do for you that will yes. help and assist you in to do your job or to, to experience uh, this place as a spectator. In complete contrast, you know, I've, pu I've pulled up to Donington Park with a truck with Acme Racing Team all over it. And the guy in the gate's going, yes, mate. And I've gone, what do you want? I'm, 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 here, I'm, I'm here for the race this weekend. And the guy's gone, I'll be the judge of that. And you think, <laughs> it's, 
It's an elaborate ploy to have an articulated truck with 700 quid's worth of fuel just to get a 30 quid ticket value to get in for now. You know, it's like, <laughs> and that's the kind of, but in America, everything, everybody, the, the track staff, the, the series staff, everybody seems to have this kind of mental attitude of whatever it is, we're going to make this work. Whatever it is, we're going to make, you, we're going to assist you in any way we can to have a better experience, do your job, or whatever it is you're there to do. And it and it was really, really when we first started going to America, um, it was really it was so apparent. It smacked you in the face every time you you got to the gate and and you had a happy smiley face. And they were ha- I mean, don't get me wrong. If you didn't have the right passes and stuff, the people on the gate would help you get the right passes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Here, yeah. let me take let me take you to the ticket office in my car. Come on, get in, yeah. and I'll take you. You know that's the kind of attitude. It was refreshing. It was brilliant. It was it was awesome, an awesome, awesome experience. The whole thing. And Graham, that, yeah. that must have helped when you were up and down the pit lane with that kind of uh, attitude. It it was an absolute joy, Paul, because because I I was going into uncharted waters as far as I was concerned, um, and and the the attitude of the team, the teams, the drivers, everybody was um yes of course we'll talk to you um what do you want to know uh, and and it was it was only later when i got back to europe and tried to do the same thing again that i discovered <laughs> what a vast <laughs> gulf there was between the attitude towards broadcast media in the states and and back in europe um where where <laughs> you you know you you were you were treated as though you were something they might just have trodden in um, uh, whereas in the states, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, everybody welcomed you. Um, the p- part of the reticence wasn't wasn't that because I didn't know the difference. Um, part of it was that I had an assignation due in Green Park, which never happened. But more more of that another. <laughs> <enough. laughs> right. Uh, 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 let me. Can I, volume, Paul? Can I? Can I? I have one little little aside here that will that I think will demonstrate it perfectly, and it involves Graham. <laughs> Oh, I was yeah. <laughs> I was at Lamar doing Radio Lamar, and this probably would have been two thousand and two or three in in that in that range. And I was trying to enter the paddock, and I had the correct credential. And the young Frenchman at the gate was not allowing me entrance to the paddock, to the back of the paddock. I think you know the gate I'm talking about, Graham, the one there in the in the center. Indeed. And I think it was more a clash of my pig French and his non-existent English, which he shouldn't, you know, I'm not being an ugly American and saying he should speak (laughs) English, but I didn't have enough command of French to explain to the man that I did have the correct credential because he felt that I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize how tense the situation had come until I felt this very gentle presence behind me. And he reached down and he put his hand on my right hand, which Unbeknownst to me at the time, I had subconsciously clenched into a fist and it was locked and loaded and ready to go. And probably if it had Graham been three minutes late, the three seconds later, I would probably still be in a French jail. But <laughs> Graham, Graham literally grabbed my fist and just kind of <laughs> gently, you know, relaxed me and started speaking to the man in French and explained to the man who I thought I was and 
uh, suddenly the seas parted. And there I was into the paddock area where I had belonged all along. And, but that's the difference in America. Uh, I wouldn't have had that problem because, um, you would have been was... able to speak English. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody would understand you there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Exactly. We've talked a lot about, um, about the Radio Le Mans involvement and we've talked a lot about just, uh, just how, Everybody got involved in that that part of the series for the ALMS. Let's hear from John Hindoff and uh, and hear what started his role in all this. John, you've been doing Radio Le Mans for ten years, I think, before the ALMS actually started. So, were they your first American motor races? It wasn't just my first American motor races, Paul. It was the first time I'd been to the States. Um, I, I, that's, uh, yes, no, that is true. That is true. In fact, to the point whereby on the first time that we went to Petit Le Mans, um, I decided that I might never get to the States again. You say, isn't this funny when you look back at it in, in hindsight? <laughs> so I, I was a single lad then, and so I decided that I was going to stay over. And... I liaised with Martin Haven because there was a couple of rounds of what was then, actually, and here's another thing, we didn't really realise this then, what was then effectively the end of the World Sports Car Championship uh, at, uh, first of all, Miami Homestead, and then what is now WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. And so I decided I was going to stay on for another couple of weeks and make the quote-unquote American experience. So I booked some internal flights and I hired a car and I, I went down after that first Petit Le Mans that, that we did as then the nascent uh, American Le Mans series Radio Web and went down first of all to Miami, met up with Haven and he was working. They were doing it live for Eurosport. Um, I do remember losing my hire car, having to lend it to Mark Webber who was driving for Mercedes in those days. I had a dark purple Chrysler Sebring, and I made the mistake of lending it to a racing driver. So it came back absolutely on the uh, on the fumes and uh, with no edges on the tyres, obviously. You know, um, something about the, uh, the Chrysler Sebring, that um, first time I ever went to Daytona, um, and I went with Paul Jurd, and that uh, we were dri- driving along, and Paul said to me, what's this car we've got? And I said, it's a Chrysler Sebring, I think. And he said, it would be better titled the Chrysler Innocuous. And to this day, I've only <laughs> Chrysler Innocuous. <laughs> I'm sure you could get the badge letters changed changed around on that. But I mean, that, don't, don't forget, Paul, that was all thrown together. That first Petit Le Mans, it was thrown together with Joe Widensall rang me up. I was at Joe Bradley's house on a Sunday night because he was the only one who had satellite television in those days. And I honestly thought somebody was winding me up. This this American accent saying, uh, are you the guys that do Radio Le Mans? Well, you know, I'm one of the guys. Well, Don Penos would like you to come and do this race we're doing. It's going to be called Petit Le Mans. And it's going to be in October. Would you like to come and do it? And basically then we had to put a team together to do it, um, which in- involved so many of the people who've been involved for such a long time uh, and included uh, a-, a chap called uh, Noel Bradford, who we'd worked with at 
a Silverstone classic, I think, before then. He'd been taking photographs and he knew about the internet, which, you know, none of us did. I couldn't turn a computer on in those days. Uh, and that's, and that is literally, that is literally how it got started. So the, the whole ethos of it was obviously about it cloning the Le Mans 24 hour race in North America. But did that actually work? Was it, was it a clone of, of Le Mans or was it different? I think that's a very good question, actually. I think that it had the, in some ways, it tried to bring the personality of of the Le Mans 24 Hours, and it tried to bring the variety um, and and the camaraderie. Because the one thing that I noticed when I got there, it was like turning the clock back. I imagine twenty or thirty years, in terms of the atmosphere in the paddock. I'd, I'd seen European paddocks and I'd been particularly involved in the British Touring Car Championship as well because we started Talker Radio uh, just uh, three or four years before this. And it was very professional um, in the States, but people mingled and they went outside their own team and they would sit and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Yeah, David Brabham is sitting with the BMW in the BMW hospital. Oh, there's a story there. No, there wasn't. He was just having a cup of yeah. and, and chatting to his mates. And, and there was a great camaraderie. And that, I'm sure, came from Le Mans. And that's what Don Pernos, God rest his soul, Dr. Pernos, um, he was trying to replicate as much of the feeling the, and the emotion about the 24-hour race at Le Mans uh, as as much as anything else. And I, and I think, broadly speaking, he he did do that. And moreover, particularly in that time, Paul, you and I, I mean, you gave me so much of my schooling about the, the history of, of Le Mans, the circuit, and Le Mans, the race. So I know I'm probably just preaching back to you yeah, but um, but but you know you and, and Charles Dressing it all comes back to Le Mans doesn't it motor racing so much of motor racing all comes back to Le Mans and Dr. Pernos understood that and tried to bring that ethos if you will to the United States and I think broadly speaking he did did replicate it in that respect um, I mean we had a good the first race we had a good uh, entry. We went a very long time before the first caution, which everybody said on a, you know, two and a half, two and three quarter mile circuit was never, ever going to happen. But I think what we did get was that um, it came in later. What was it called? Um, European style American attitude for the fans, all of that stuff. But ultimately, Le Mans was still, even then, Paul, um, in the late 90s, it was still really just one race. There'd been all kinds of things that the SEO tried to do to get Le Mans, we all knew that it was the greatest motor race in the world and we all knew that it was the sports car race in the world. And, you know, as I have said many times, you can argue about that, but you'd be wrong. And Don built a series around that and built a series around that feeling, around that atmosphere. Uh, And I, I think, broadly speaking, it worked. And I think the kind of openness that Don brought to it from an American standpoint, along with what the ACO's vision of Le Mans would be about making history every time you go on the track, but only once a year. Well, Don then replicated that in the American Le Mans series 10, 11, 12 times a year. And what 
what Dunn did and the whole of the ELMS organisation did was they listened to everybody, they reacted to their uh, their competitors, their stakeholders, I suppose you would say would be the trendy term, whether that was drivers, teams or, or manufacturers or, or sponsors. And they were prepared to move quickly because it was all theirs. It was their property so they could do anything they wanted. And whether that meant, hey, we're going to do qualifying here, we need to have a, teams would say to uh, the race direction, um, if we're going to qualify at one o'clock, why are we having a uh, why we're we having our last free practice session at nine o'clock in the morning doesn't help us. Yeah. So can we can we have one at noon? Well, yes. And you know, all the guys at the top would say yes, but then if you crash the car, you might not make qualifying. Well, that's our problem. All right, let's do it. And I remember that. I remember that conversation being had. Okay, let's do it. What from the next meeting? No, no, from today. Let's just change the schedule. Let's what? change it for Friday or whatever it was. Yeah. Because they could do that because they they were in charge, and uh, uh, all of the guys in in race control and in uh, who made the decisions they, they were all race fans. And let's do it if that's what makes it better for you. Let's do it. That probably begs a different question, which is: Do you think that the ACO learnt anything from the American Le Mans series? Undoubtedly. And the first thing they learned was that the words Le Mans uh, and racing with Le Mans, whether it was American Le Mans series or European Le Mans series, which Dr. Don did again, or Petit Le Mans, had a financial value and a financial value that they had never dreamed of before. I think, and, and probably Jim Roller would be able to tell you better, than me, but I've got a feeling that the first contract was $10 million to use that ah. for, for an amount of time. And and that was the money that was handed over from, from the organisation in the States to the ACO to licence Le Mans series, either American Le Mans series, European Le Mans series, uh, Asian Le Mans series, which of course were all uh, conjured up from from the, the LMS organisation to start with, um, and and that was the kind of money that the ACO hadn't seen before, yeah. and an organisation that's been around as long as the ACO, it's difficult sometimes, isn't it, to to understand what is worth sticking out for and getting the financial reward for, and what you can afford to give away, and I think it's fair to say that down through the years, that maybe had got. And I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily criticising. I just think it was difficult for them to understand what was important and what they could get money for and what they should be giving away that they were trying to get money for. Yeah, I and, think. And there's, and, there's plenty of, and there's plenty of sporting organisations that still don't get that balance right, by the way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that certainly at that time, the ACO was running the greatest motor race in the world as a village fate committee and that they were... They were so obsessed with the little things and the big things were just put on the back burner at, at the very best. But Agreed. it's do you, do you think that 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 the ACO changed their product because of the American Le Mans series? I'm not sure that they did in a deliberate sense. 
But what you've got to look at at the first years of the American Le Mans series, Paul, is that there was no World Sports Car Championship. There was no WEC. There didn't need to be because there was the ELMS. That was the World Championship. That's how good it was in those first three, four, five years, probably even a little bit beyond that. And there were times at Le Mans where out of four classes, 16 podium positions, I think that it was at least a couple of years, certainly one year, that I believe the only non-ELMS entrant was RML when they won in what is now the equivalent of, of LMP2. And yeah. that was that's extraordinary to think that so much quality was coming out of that series. We were, oh man, we were blessed. We were absolutely blessed and fortunate to have been there and seen some of those battles and to have seen the quality that was going on when, sadly, no longer with us, Charlie Lamb and Schnitzer came over and Joost came over and they were battling against the best of the Americans on on tracks that the Europeans were going, are you kidding me? Some of the European yeah. drivers wouldn't drive. Some, Joe Winklehock, wouldn't wouldn't drive at Canadian Time Motorsport Park. Now, there's a good reason for that, and there's family yeah. history there and family tragedy, of course, as everybody that listens to this knows about. But he came hoping it would be different and, and decided he didn't want to drive. This was extraordinary times. These were extraordinary times. And I think the other thing that the LMS taught everybody, everybody in motor racing, and again, I'm not even sure whether this was deliberate from their point of view. Fan access, fan access for the fans was always so much more than just a line underneath the logo. It was genuine. It was absolutely genuine. And even how we got to opening the grids literally minutes before the cars rolled off, that was done out of an idea that we were at Portland. Uh, the previous show on live network television was running long because of some kind of rain delay. And somebody said, OK, we've got the choice. And again, Roller will remember this because I'm pretty sure he was in the TV truck. And the choice was we could start the race on time or we could uh, and then, then have network TV join in progress. Or we could delay the race and network TV would come for the start of the race. And the decision, not unreasonably, was made by the ALMS. Well, let's delay the race. There's nothing comes after us. It's our track, effectively. We, we've got, right, what we're going to do between now, when everybody's expecting us to start the race countdown, and when we actually start the race. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think it was Tim Mayer and Dick Martin who, between them, one of those two said, why don't we just open the grid? Right, right. And somebody said, really? And then they turned around to me and said, if we open the grid, can you do, do you think you can do an announcement that gets everybody off the grid in time? And I went, well, no pressure there then, eh? And that's literally how that started. That is literally how that started. And that became such a feature, Paul, that other people had to do it. You know, a wide open grid with no extra pass, no extra money going down to get onto the front straight with all the cars at Petit Le Mans 
And the amounts of times that I've looked from our commentary position and had that philosophical discussion with Jeremy or whoever was in the booth with me, if I can't see the track and any of the cars, are they actually still there? Because you could not see from <laughs> basically just up to turn one all the way to the final corner was just a mass of seething humanity. Unbelievable stuff. That's the definition of success, isn't it? And and clearly, it uh, it works very well in the US. But they they also ran in outside North America. That uh, they ran in in Europe and beyond. Was was that a success? I think it was. I think it was a qualified success. Um, I think it was probably a couple of three years too early. But try telling Don Pernos that uh, we had um, races at Donington Park and. At Silverstone, uh, sadly, where we almost lost our our good friend Jim Martin, now no longer uh, with us, but somehow he survived a horrible car accident there. So that was rather tainted for us. Uh, we lost Jim Roller in a different sense at Donington Park. He was meant to be racing for us and ended up having to do the TV production because somebody fell ill. Um, Nürburgring uh, went to... Uh, Various places on the continent of Europe, including uh, Spain. And uh, I remember Harama doing an ELMS event uh, as well, although doing that rather more remotely, actually, considering uh, how we do things in the current climate. I think, if I'm honest, it was probably maybe two or three years too early for that. Um, the concept was right. Uh, Don, Dr. Pernos had, had the rights to do it. I just don't think there was enough interest from the regional side of things, bearing in mind what I said before, Paul, about the ELMS effectively being the world championship. There wasn't at that time quite room for a European championship or an Asian championship as well. All the big teams were doing the American stuff and were, were committed to that. It was, it, it's, you know, everything in life, good and bad, Matt retirement, isn't it? it? It was so close. And we had some great races. I, I mean, particularly the one at Silverstone, the, the racy prototype that rolled off the truck just so fast and got faster. It was, I mean, it was unbelievable. And the, and the British public hadn't seen that for a very, very long time. The, 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 Donny, the first Donny race was great. The Silverstone race uh, was, was great. We still had some great races. Nürburgring in... In a, in a thunderstorm, um, a Nürburgring on the Grand Prix striker, of course, Grand Prix circuit, of course. Yeah. Uh, all good. Race of a thousand years in Australia, which I never got to go to because I, I couldn't take all the time off work I needed. And it would be another 15 years before I got to Australia. All of those things, they did set the tone for later. I just think there may have been just slightly timing issues in terms of, of when, when the organisation tried to do them. Now, John, you continue to be involved very much with IMSA in North America and with all that they do. How much does the racing now owe to the American Le Mans series and to Don Paynos? Everything. Start beginning and end. If it hadn't been for what Dr. Paynos did in the mid to late 90s, right across American sports car racing. It was in turmoil at the time. Not that we knew or cared about that, Paul, to be honest. We were just getting a free trip to America when we went out there. But it was in turmoil uh, at the time. It had been the whole power struggle within the then IMSA organisation, Andy Evans and all of that sort of stuff. And 
without someone. Do you know what? No, not without someone. Without Dr. Pernos. I'm not sure whether there was anybody else in motorsports who could have done it. And Dr. Pernos was enough outside of motorsports that he just didn't care about convention. And he went right. in there and said, guys, we need to make a business out of this. And if we make a business out of this, we'll all benefit. Why can't you say that? Why are you fighting amongst yourselves? And the machinations of that going forward laid all the foundation stones for what was to come. The fight with Grandam, you can see that in many different ways. The subsequent coming back together for the, the the United Sports Car Championship and then what has happened since then with the reinvigorating of IMSA as a brand, which was exactly the right brand, of course, to take the whole thing forward. None of that would have happened without the American Le Mans series. None of that would have happened without that first Petit Le Mans race and Dr. Don Pernos, simple as. John, thank you very much indeed for uh, for that insight. As always, uh, you've you've given us lots and lots to think about, and uh, it's great that you continue to do your work with him, sir, because we all enjoy that very much. And uh, thank you for being part of this Historic Racing News Radio Show special. Thanks, Paul. I, I, if I may, I'd like to say one final thing. There's an awful lot of people who all... Dr. Don, given what I've just said, an awful lot, including me. We owe him our livelihood now, and so do a lot of drivers and a lot of other people involved in the sport. And every time I go to Petite, particularly, I always raise a glass of red to him because without him and his vision, there's an awful lot of us would not be where we are today. Thanks for letting us be involved. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Some of the uh, some of the cars that you saw in the American Le Mans series were fairly familiar. Obviously, the Audis and 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 latter, latterly the Peugeots, which always was a bit of a surprise to me. But there were some really oddball things as well, weren't there? That came up. Well, the, in the beginning, you have to remember that there was a the American Le Mans series when it launched in 1999 was sports car racing was still in a transition. Uh, it wasn't until 2000 that the Audi R8 really came into its own. So in 1999, when the series launched, there were Riley and Scott's racing. There were uh, all kinds of different uh, Raffinelli had uh, his own prototype Gabriele Raffinelli in the uh, Olive Garden livery and, and things of that nature. And you had a mix of Ferrari 333 SPs still and that sort of stuff. And then in 2000, when the Audi R8 and the, well, and in 1999, of course, you had the BMW, the, the, the Formula One uh, car based, the Williams based BMW, which, which uh, as Joe will recall in 1999, when, one of the great stories of, of, uh, of the American Le Mans series for me was uh, the JJ Leto and Jorg Mueller, M- poor Mueller throwing the, throwing the car into the gravel trap in the last literally five minutes of a 10 hour race. And then JJ Leto abandoning him in, in at the, <laughs> at the uh, victory circle, but, um, and, and allowing Panos the, in the, in the Panos uh, roadsters. But, so you had an opportunity, and, and that's one of the cars, the, the BMW Formula One car and the Panos cars in 1999 and then throughout uh, their battles with the Audis were, 
were two of the the ones that uh, I really liked. And to invoke the name of Charles Dressing again, um, he used to have a saying that whenever the panos uh, fired up in the paddock area, you had to alert the uh, folks at the seismograph office in Denver, Colorado, because no matter where you were, you would you would feel the earth shake, and it would uh, give them a false earthquake reading. So uh, those those Panos LMP1 cars, uh, front engine, big Ford power, they were they were fun to listen to, fun to watch race. It's, it's interesting you should talk about Panos because certainly in the UK we we always have everybody anybody on a microphone, anybody standing in a grandstand had trouble on whether it was Panos, 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 um, <laughs> and and it kind of continued a thing which has happened a lot in motorsport history of American racing drivers and how on earth you say their names that it wasn't until comparatively well, recently that I realized <laughs> that Lance who everybody called him Lance Reventlow who was the um the, the Woolworth heir who started Scarab back in the 50s and 60s that he was always known as Lance Reventlow and that it wasn't until I was talking to somebody in the US who said Lance Reventlow, and I thought, "Hey, is that how you say it?" And and that in in back in the day, it was always in the UK, Bob Bondurant. <laughs> and somebody said to me, "Well, Bob that's Bondurant." That's, that's just you say tomato, I say tomato. I mean, that's <laughs> well. I mean, no, seriously, some of that, some of that is that yeah. because. Yeah. The, the, there it tends to be in in American English. There tends to be an inflection, uh, or as I like to say, put the inf, uh, the, the inflection on the wrong syllable, and and that that will throw you off every time. And, and remember that. And remember that in South America, in Spain, panos is panos, um, but that's a completely that's, that's, you know, that's, that's um, right. And that that's the most bizarre thing, really, isn't it? I mean. You know, the American Le Mans series, I was involved in the American Le Mans series from the inaugural petite right the way through. And I think I did my last petite in 06. Um, two la- and Hindoff is still there. Now, two lads from the northeast of England, we don't even speak English. Grim Tyler <laughs> speaks English. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. John and I were fr- are from the northeast of England. We've got different accents that the American ear uh, probably struggled with. Especially when you went to the, you know, the, the southern states like, you know, the Floridas and the Atlantas, um, how they understood us, I didn't care. I was there, and they loved us, and they wanted us to go back, so we did. I can remember in 1999 we were doing, I think it was Mosport, um, or no, this would have been this would have been in the second TV iteration, but we so it would have been for me for 2000 and. <laughs> 2002 and Don always <laughs> thought that all of the stuff was controlled controlled through the TV truck and so if he had a problem with anything he'd call the TV truck or or, or whoever was in charge of television at the time and tell him to you know tell so and so to do this that or the other thing well we get this phone call in the TV truck and it's Panos Tell that guy from Scotland to quit talking about the Audis and start talking about my damn cars. <laughs> that guy from Scotland being John Hindoff, who's not from Scotland. Yeah, he's not. He wasn't far off though. Usually, you get mistaken. Yeah, it was only like ninety yeah. miles away. Yeah, yes, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Usually, you get caught, caught, uh, taken for Australians and stuff. Um, 
Just now, you just would going, be never mistaken for Australian, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> just going, just going back to the car, the cars, Paul. That you know, if you if you jog your memory, the thing that I think people loved about this series was that the cars were all shapes and sizes and sounded different. The Audi R8 was. Uh, you see, the problem at the time when you're living it and you and you're part of it, you have to. There was only people like Charles Dressing. Chuck would would kind of stop me in my tracks and go, you have to realise this is an era that people are going to look back as halcyon days of sports car racing and we are here witnessing this. And Chuck would always pull us in line and, and bring us into this, like, stop, guys, have a look about yourself, look around you, see what it is, because this is something that we're, pe- that we're part of, that we're, that we're witnessing that people look, will look back on with sort of rose-tinted glasses and bleary eyes. And when you think yeah. about it, he was so right. I mean, I often see Audi R8s now in historic racing, and you see those cars and you think, wow, weren't they before their time? Because if somebody designed an Audi R8 now, you would think, oh, that's state-of-the-art. Because that car yeah. just dominated, yeah. didn't it? And then... Oh, it was a wonderful come, machine, wasn't it? Compare that with the Panos LMP1 Roadster, with the driver was sat pretty much over the rear axle, and how people like Brabs and Jan Magnussen and Johnny O'Connell, uh, how they drove that car, I don't know, because they were kind of part of the pendulum effect. That when that car went sideways, the car didn't wasn't pivoting around them; they were on the end of the pivot. How they yeah. got the balance to, to drive those cars and win races, let's not forget. You know, they, they weren't just, they, were, they didn't just have a walk on part. They won races in that LMP1 Roadster. And yeah, that was another good. thing. The competitiveness of that series was just, you know, you could have a Riley and Scott win it. I mean, they won the first championship, didn't they, in 1999? The first championship was won by a Riley and Scott with Eric right. Forbes Robinson at the way. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Graham, you yes. you've said to me in the past that it was it was one of those things where it wasn't just about the first, the, the premier class of of the race. There was all the the GT cars, and oh, they went by yeah, various um, different names um, over the years. But but they were always very much part of it too, weren't they? And for me, particularly because I I I came to came to love um, utterly the uh, the Corvettes. Um, Ron Fellows became a personal hero because he was just such a nice guy, um, but a demon driver with it. Um, and, and yes, there, there were there were there were fabulous teams in the GT category. Um, uh, Alex Job and people like that. Um, the Racers Group, Kevin Butler, uh, you know, made a, a, a complete um, uh, entry. I think he entered six cars at, at, at one point, Kevin Butler. Incredible. Um, but uh, these were teams that, of which I'd heard, but never experienced. And then you've got the 550 Marinellos. Um, again, um, Olive Garden. So Raffinelli moved into GTS. Um, and that that GTS, for, for me, was, was a category which I, I just fell in love and which wasn't truly represented in the UK particularly well. Um, but in America, big fat V8s. Thank you very much. Love that. Mm. <laughs> that that also provided us with with um, 
the, some of the best rivalries because what Graham is talking about, Paul, the Corvette and the 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 Ferrari, not only with Raffinelli but also then with uh, ProDrive, and then when ProDrive brought the Aston Martins in, that provided us some great uh, racing and and a wonderful rivalry, which uh, for a lot of us was played out on the biggest stage at Le Mans, but they would shake hands before and after every race. And they were gentlemen on the racetrack. They gave no quarter, but, and, and, and in the boardroom, they gave no quarter in the rules and everything else, but on the, but uh, the teams themselves were, were good friends and, and provided us with just some absolutely wonderful uh, things to talk about. And for people in the media, whether it be radio or television, when you've got that kind of, uh, it makes your job easy because that kind of competition is just absolutely enchanting to watch. Do you think that the ALMS was as professional as its European counterpart? Was it more professional? Um, was it just different? I, th- I think. Sorry, go Jim. Go ahead. No, yeah. go ahead, Joe. You, you're, I, you're a former team manager. You can express I, this. I, yeah, I was. I was actually going to just just say that I haven't been part. You know, been. Um, involved in racing teams and the like, um, they they were different, Paul. That that's the best way I can describe it. They were ultra professional, very well financed, uh, very well funded operations. But in the, the early days of the American Le Mans series, we had manufacturing teams. We had Audi. We had BMW. Panos was a was a, a small scale manufacturer, but we were still a manufacturer. We had Corvette, you know, GM was represented, Chrysler was represented with the Viper. Um, they were, it, was, it, was a, it was a very, very high standard of going motor racing. And you knew that by being around, just being part of that paddock. Um, we had even, even the privateer teams, you know, like, like uh, Kevin Buckler, like um, Martin and Melody Snow. Um, Alex Job was a team John that Field. had John Field. That's per- perfect yeah. example. Um, these were were amateur amateur guys who had regular jobs. They, you know, these were businessmen. But when they went motor racing, there was only one way to go motor racing in the American Le Mans series, and that was to have the right amount of money and to do it in a very high level way of doing things if that makes sense you you had to be you had to be on your game you had to be doing things uh, the right way you were you weren't just you weren't just going to be able to turn up and wheel out you know a three-year-old car that hadn't had its backside wiped for three years you had to be on the game you had to be doing it at a very high level and a very high standard of prep and they were yeah, weren't I, they all the, all the way down the all the way down the grid that 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 was the the joy of it every class had had professionalism oozing out of it, uh, and that that was something that I, I don't believe was as much the case in Europe as it was in the States. Well, and, and I in, think also uh, I agree with with Graham and Joe both, and I think the difference is is that everybody likes to look at Formula One as being the height of professionalism. Well, you don't have to walk around with a stick up your butt and to to act like you're professional, which is what it, Formula One is all about. You know, our, mm-hmm. our, our poo doesn't stink. Well, yeah, your, your farts smell just like everybody else's. And <laughs> it, it, the, the American uh, idea of professionalism was 
how you turned out your car and how you competed and what your team looked like, not whether you had 17 PR people and, you know, had your trailer locked all the time. Um, you know, it was, it was a different kind of professionalism, but believe me, it was, it was no holds barred professionalism. It was as Char- again, invoking Charles dressing who we need to get into round two of this. If we're going to keep, uh, keep uh, bringing him up all the time. He always used to like to say, and it's a, uh, it could be probably translated to cricket, but it's an American baseball term. They were throwing overhand uh, and that yeah. means throwing fastballs. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's about it. Now, if, if you have got anything that you would like us to talk about in the second part of this special about the American Le Mans series, please let us know at Hist Racing News on Twitter or via our Facebook page, and uh, we'll be happy to raise the subjects with our erudite team. But um, next time we're going to talk about the highs and few of the lows, perhaps, of uh, those years of the American Le Mans series. Um, that will be broadcast on March the 10th at 10 p.m. UK time, and uh, will be available to download straight afterwards. So special thanks to Joe Widensall and to John Hindoff for coming and uh, putting their side of the story and uh, thanks very much to my guests Jim Roller, Joe Bradley and Graham Tyler. Gentlemen, I hope that you will come and uh, do this all again in a month's time but uh, but for now, thank you all very much indeed and uh, as always, if you have been thank you for listening stay safe and we'll see you next time <laughs>